Thank you, Holly. That was um, so helpful. I think you should do what I'm going to do, and I think I'm going to do one of the packets instead. <laughs> so we know we are heading into Oscar season, or so I'm told. And like a good Oscar director, I'm going to ask you to... Um, we're going to take the lens. We're supposed to read Exodus 12, 1 through 13 this morning, and we will. But like a good Oscar director, I'm going to say, let's pull the camera back just one step and get a little bit more context, okay? So we're going to go to Exodus chapter 11 and share a few verses there and then go into the actual text that I'm supposed to be speaking on this morning, 12, 1 through 13. It's in the Pew Bibles, pages 57 and 58, if you want to follow along or on the screens. Hear now the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. Verse 4. Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt such as has never been or ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, leave us, you and all the people who follow you. After that, said Moses, I will leave. And in hot anger, he left Pharaoh. Beginning in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood from the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that does remain until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. 
It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the gift of God's word to us this morning. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I I come before you this morning with gratefulness. And this is a hard passage. But we ask for your spirit to teach us. Even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've been sitting with this passage all week long, and I have yet to shed a tear. And then I stand before you, and I start crying. I don't get it. (laughs) But it's a very sobering passage, to say the least. But I have a question for you to start our time together. Does anybody know what spelunking is? Spelunking. I see a couple of head nods. I see a couple of hands. That's great. Spelunking for the rest of us is the activity around or the exploration of life in a cave. Caving might be another way or a term that you've heard. Back in the early 20s when I was in Bible school high up in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, my small group leader announced in our Tuesday morning meeting that this coming Friday night just after our last class of the week at 9 p.m. sharp to be exact, we were going spelunking. So I quickly went to the dictionary because back in those days there was no such thing as phones to look up stuff and all that. So I went to the dictionary to look it up what it meant and it meant life in a cave. So when the class, last class of the week was over on that Friday evening, we piled into the van and drove off into the night. And after about 45 minutes of twists and turns through valleys and narrow canyon roads, we came to a trail. And from there, we got out of the van and we hiked up and around and and over this large outcropping of gigantic boulders, and then suddenly we stopped, for we had arrived at our destination. Quickly, lest we all run back to the van, our our small group leader lined us up one by one in single file and placed himself at the front of the line in the mouth of the cave. Before disappearing before our eyes, he gave us this two-part instruction. First, he said, you must make sure to only listen to the voice in front of you, for that voice will be your guide through this darkness. And second, he said, you must only do exactly as the voice in front of you says to do if you want to make it through the cave to the other side. None of us knew the way through the cave. Only our leader did. And with that, he turned off his flashlight, dropped into the cave, pitch black, devoid of all light, out of sight. Now imagine with me, if you will, that it's your turn to go into the cave. You've stood in line, single file, waiting for your turn 
to go into this cave, the first thing you will notice is the cool, dank air and how it begins to cling to your skin as you enter in. The second thing you notice is that you literally could not see your hand a quarter inch from your face. It was that dark. Your eyes try to adjust to the dark, but that adjustment just kind of abruptly subsides. For when light is gone in a cave, only one thing remains, and that's darkness. Listen to the voice in front of you and do what it says. As it turns out, I was the last one into the cave that night. No one behind me to encourage me. Only the voice in front of me to tell me what to do and how to walk and what to feel and what to expect. It was pitch black. There was no place to go but forward into the cave, into the darkness, following the voice that was in front of me. Spelunking in the middle of a moonless night high up in the mountains brought a completely new understanding and depth to the phrase, it is by faith we are to walk with God, not by sight. That, we discovered, was the whole point of our adventure that evening in the cave. And so it appears to me an emerging theme rises from our text this morning, which also parallels this adventure in the cave, and it is simply this, from the darkness, we are to listen to God's voice and ultimately do what God tells us to do. As a reminder, and thanks to what Holly shared with us this morning, at the end of the book of Genesis, the nation of Israel has prospered in Egypt thanks to the leadership of Joseph and the benevolence of his boss, the king of Egypt, also known as Pharaoh. However, the book of Genesis is but a distant memory as Exodus chapter 1 begins, for there is now a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And simply put, this new king enslaves the people of Israel in order to accomplish his goals of building an empire characterized by wealth and power and privilege and cities full of impressive buildings, all of it, all of it, built on the backs of God's people, slaves in a foreign land. Reading through the first few chapters in Exodus, trying to enter into the story and feel what the people felt You can't help but notice words like ruthless and dread and oppression and forced labor and shrewdness and death by drowning and taskmasters and bitter and beaten and hard and groaning and cries of mercy to a seemingly hidden God. It's an intense drama, to say the least. But the good news is is that God does hear the cries of his people and their cries of mercy. As the story unfolds, we read of this tug-of-war battle between God's representative, Moses, and Pharaoh himself. And as Kurt reminded us last week, the phrase that dominates the discussions between Moses and Pharaoh is the phrase, let my people go. Simply put, if Pharaoh chooses not to let the people of God go, then God would send a plague upon the whole nation of Egypt. You know the story of the plagues. Let my people go, says Moses. No way, says Pharaoh. Plague number one. Let my people go, says Moses. No way, says Pharaoh. Plague number two, and so on and so forth. Clearly, Pharaoh is unfazed by the power of God. His heart is hard because his pride and and his glory and his kingdom are at stake. He's a threatened man slowly being pushed into a corner. 
With each passing plague, Pharaoh is emboldened and his grip upon his kingdom tightens and he digs in his heel and he brings it to Moses and he says, come on, man, come on, let's do it. Bring it on, Moses. He doesn't really say that, but you know what I'm saying, right? And so this tug of war continues all the way down through nine plagues, nine of them. Walter Brueggemann, a Old Testament scholar says that the very signs themselves, these plagues, are the means whereby the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is accomplished. It's not like God mysteriously inhabits Pharaoh's DNA or psyche and forces him to think one way. Pharaoh already thinks in way, in one way, his way. My pride, my glory, my kingdom, my name, my legacy. That's Pharaoh's world, and he is not going to give it up. And so to counter, God mobilizes all of his created order, frogs and locusts and flies and gnats and water and so much more to pave the way to freedom and peace. But the power of the resistance to the power of God, which resides deep in the heart of Pharaoh, can only be cleansed by one final plague the plague of death. To all the firstborn of all associated with Egypt. This is very, very sobering to think about. So let me just say it as, as succinctly as I can. Death is not God's choice, ever. Rather, death is God's last resort always. The thick darkness that had descended upon the nation of Israel to which Mary referred to in her sermon a few, a few weeks ago has now returned some 80 years later. This time, however, instead of it falling upon the nation of Israel, the darkness falls upon the Egyptian people instead. No respecter of persons here, from the least of all villages to the most sophisticated and fortified cities, from the life of peasantry to the life of royalty, death will come. Unless, of course, from the darkness, you listen to God's voice and you do what he says. And that's the Passover. It's the Passover of God which will save his people from the dark cloud of death about to be unleashed across the country. It's the Passover of God which will ultimately pave the pathway to freedom and peace. God, by his power, will protect his people, even in the face of Pharaoh and his power to resist. That's the dominant point of the plague narrative. God, by his power, will protect his people, even in the face of Pharaoh and his power to resist. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but there is a silent voice in this drama. There's a voice on the sidelines. There's a voice who is just a wee bit skeptical. A voice who watches and waits and wonders to see what God will do. That one voice is the voice of the people of God. And oh, how long they have waited to be set free from their experience of bondage and oppression. Tucked away in Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, is this verse. 
which tells us that God's people had a despondency that was so deep, their worry was so burdensome that they no longer listened to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. They were done. They had checked out for all intents and purposes. Their hope was all but gone. They were a broken people. And so to the sidelines they went, watching this drama unfold. Perhaps you too come this morning with a sense of suffering or a broken spirit as well. Like the nation of Israel long, long ago, you have your doubts and fears in a form of darkness or faithlessness or skepticism that has seeped into your soul. Waiting is hard. Waiting is lonely. Waiting makes your bones ache and your heart weak. Waiting is discouraging. It can break your spirit. Done. (laughs) No more. It's just this side of hopeless. Up to now, the drama has centered around God and Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron. And it's easy to forget that all the while, God is at work for his people. It's easy to forget that all the while, God is at work for you too. In this drama, God's people are front and center in his mind. In your drama, you are front and center of God's mind as well. They are the ones he is looking out for, and you are the one that he is looking out for too. And the proof is the Passover. The power of the plagues was to push Pharaoh to repentance, to motivate him to cease his selfish and bullying ways. But the power of the plagues was also a tool used by God to woo the people of God, back to himself to wonder and to worship. And by the 10th plague, Exodus 12, 28 tells us that the Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. God indeed had wooed his people back to wonder and worship. And it only took nine plagues to do it. Out of the darkness, under the shroud of the stroke of midnight, they heard his voice And they did what he said. They got the lamb. They shared the lamb. They roasted the lamb. They ate the the lamb hurriedly. They took the hyssop plant and dipped it in the lamb's blood and applied it to the doorposts of their houses and to the lintel at the top of the frame. This blood, says Brueggemann, is a sign that makes visible the promise of God and assures the protection of Israel. Bitter herbs were consumed, a reminder of the bitter life that they were going to be leaving behind in Egypt. Unleavened bread was consumed because they knew that they would be leaving in a hurry and could not wait around until the yeast worked and the bread rose. In the darkness, they heard his voice and they ate the Passover meal in faith. Faith that God would lead them through the darkness. Faith that God would answer their cries for help. Faith that God would provide freedom from captivity. Eugene Peterson writes, the person of faith outlasts all the oppressors. 
including, I might add, Pharaoh in his shame-filled, bullying, and burdensome ways. And so this morning, I wonder what might be your oppressor. What is that thing in your life that must stand down to the faith we have in the God who is able? God is able, you know. He really, really is. So in closing, I have this one final thought and then a question I want to ask you to ask yourselves this week. And the thought is this. I know that you know that we gather here in this place this morning as a people of faith. I know that you know that. In fact, we gather this morning as a people of faith under the banner of God's one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul calls Jesus our Passover Lamb. So clearly the New Testament writers have connected the events of the 10th plague and placed them squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. Paul also tells us in Colossians 1 that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell and reside in Christ Jesus so that we might be reconciled and restored to peace with God set free from our bondage to sin, set free from our doubts and fears and whatever form of darkness or faithlessness or skepticism that has seeped into our souls. All of this, says Paul, is possible by the power of the blood of Jesus who was shed, who died on a cross. That blood was shed on the cross for you and for me. That's the Passover experienced by those who listen to his voice and do what it says, who live by faith and not by sight. The question I want to ask you to ask yourself this week is this. It's a big one. It's a long one, so hang in there with me, okay? If my vocation, if my calling, if my purpose in life, if the path that I am to walk on is first and foremost to listen to God's voice and then do what it says. That's the if. Here's the question. Then what am I doing to put myself in a position whereby I can hear his voice in order to step out in faith and do what he says? That's a mouthful, so let me say it again. What am I doing to put myself in a position whereby I can hear his voice in order to step out in faith and do what he says. That answer is going to be different for each and every one of us. My hope and prayer is that you will take some quiet and alone time this week, free from distraction, free from the devices that we seemingly hold on to as if they were our lifeblood. Settle down in your heart for a few moments. And be still before the Lord and ask Him how it is He wants you to live today, this week, this year. My hope and prayer is, is that you will be able to discern God's voice and do what He calls and tells you to do. The Christian life is an adventure, like spelunking. Our role 
is to take the time to listen to his voice and do what he says and trust him for the steps that he calls us to take. So let's continue on in our adventure with God, okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being with us here this morning. Thank you for your relentless pursuit of our hearts. Thank you for your liberating love. Thank you for your always presence, presence in our lives. Even though we may not see you, even though we may not feel you, even though we may not touch you, touch you or taste you at times, probably most times. May we be still long enough to know that you are God. And I am confident that when we do that, you will come alongside and you will woo us to your heart. And our appropriate response is to worship you, to declare your praise, and to say thank you for walking with me, with us. We bless you and praise you for your holy word and for your good your goodness to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.